Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Friends. I'm Carissa Nitschi, and we're so glad you can join us. Since our last edition of Brussels Sprouts, the United States has a new president in the White House. Um, along with Biden's inauguration, there has been a lot of speculation about what Biden's policies will look like in the next four years in various areas. Today, we have the great privilege of sitting down with Lindsey Gorman and Martin Rasser to discuss what transatlantic technology policy might look like in the next four years. For those listeners who don't know Lindsay and Martin, Lindsay Gorman is the Emerging Technologies Fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy and a consultant for Schmidt Futures. Lindsay has spent a decade at the intersection of technology development and national security policy, including in the office of US Senator Mark Warner, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the National Academy of Sciences. Our other guest who will be joining us today is Martin Rasser. Martin is one of CNAS's very own. He is a senior fellow in our technology and national security program. Prior to joining CNAS, Martin served as a senior intelligence officer and analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, a senior advisor in the office of the Secretary of Defense, and a vice chairman of the National Intelligence Council Working Group. So thank you to both of you for joining us. So great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So let's jump right in and start with a particularly thorny issue in the transatlantic relationship. Um, let's start with deferring threat perceptions of China's technology and strategic approaches to decoupling in the technology space. Um, the Biden administration has committed to approaching problems multilaterally and along with our allies. So I have two questions for um, both of you. The first is the past four years have really brought about a number of unilateral export controls and a slew of executive orders, including those on TikTok and WeChat. Do you think that the Biden administration will try to walk back some of those more unilateral tools like the executive orders? And then kind of on that same token, do you think there's appetite within Europe for transatlantic cooperation on export controls? Sure, I'll uh, jump in on that one real quick. I think, uh, yes, by and large, the Biden administration will take a, a hard look at a lot of those unilateral actions. Um, I think the broad consensus is that uh, the Trump administration's actions on that front uh, have not been particularly effective. Like TikTok, I think, is a great example of um, you know a lot of bluster, but then very little uh, uh, substantive uh, consequences from it. So, um, you know, the exact makeup of what the, the Biden administration is going to do on these issues will be interesting to see, right? Because there is a lot of agreement overall with the, the concerns about TikTok and, and other Chinese apps, as well as uh, other Chinese companies, such as Huawei, for example. But um, yeah, that a lot of uh, the Biden team's overall strategy is very much rooted in multilateral approaches. So I uh, would expect a lot of discussions going on behind the scenes um, with our, our allies in Europe on how to best approach these issues going forward. Um, so uh, it's going to be very interesting times um, uh, on matters of tech policy. You know, just the fact that there's a tech directorate in the National Security Council now is a, is a very big deal. I think we'll see more effective um, efforts coming out of State Department as well. So um, yeah, stay tuned. It's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting ride. 
Yeah, I do think it's a, a very hopeful time, actually, for transatlantic technology policy, which is not to elide over some of the thorny issues, uh, Carissa, that you alluded to. But I do think this administration is prioritizing a methodical approach, a process-based approach to issues of Chinese technological dominance, and indeed a multilateral one that ultimately has the promise to be far more effective and, and far more sticky, I would say, than some of the unilateral actions that we've seen coming out of the previous administration. Um, certainly having a, a tech directorate at the National Security Council is an amazing start to show the importance that this administration is placing on science and technology, also elevating the White House science and technology advisor to a cabinet level position, I think is a signal of its commitment. And also remember that the State Department Bureau of Cybersecurity and Emerging Technology um, is, is potentially emerging in, in the coming year and will take on a greater role at, and rightly sort of situate technology policy in international relations. That's not to say that there aren't some thorny questions, particularly in the transatlantic context. And I think as, you know, as, as now Secretary of State Tony Blinken said in his confirmation hearing that the diagnosis of the threats from the previous administration um, on Chinese threats was approximately right, but that how that administration went about it um, was perhaps not the most methodical, not the most process-oriented, not the most supportive uh, of democratic ideals. I think we've seen, especially over the last two years on the European side, an increasing realization of what some of those threats are and, and perhaps a coming together on at least the diagnosis of the threats part. And I think there are, there are a number of reasons for that. In part, the coronavirus pandemic, I think, has highlighted some of the failings of this non-transparent censorship uh, and, and disinformation-focused system. Certainly, China's wolf warrior diplomats have not really helped its case. Um, but I think there remain to be some significant differences in, in the United States and Europe in terms of how they approach their own domestic technology policies, particularly with Europe wanting to focus primarily on regulating U.S. technology giants. Uh, we have the Digital Services Act coming down the pike and with the United States wanting to work more closely together um, on China. And then I guess lastly, I would just say to, to kick us off here that I think it's also important to think to realize that Europe itself is not a monolith there, even within within Brussels, you have the European Commission, the European Parliament, uh, and of course, the differences among the member states and the competing factions and um, and interests that go along with that. You know, Germany in particular in the last couple of weeks has shown uh, an increasing willingness to move closer to China in part because of its auto industry. And so there's, there are going to be a lot of moving pieces. I think these are thorny issues, um, but I, I would still say that it is a hopeful time um, that now after four years of Europe wanting more multilateral engagement on these issues, I think we have an administration in office that is interested in, in working together and, and hopefully we can paper over some of these differences uh, and come out stronger on, on it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I share Lindsay's optimism, right? I, I think uh, j just um, even before the new administration took office, for example, the EU signaled that they were very interested in engaging with the United States through this Trade and Technology Council. Um, that in and of itself is, is a very encouraging sign. Um, as Lindsay pointed out, yes, there's a lot of areas of disagreement but there's also a lot of common ground. And I think if the Biden administration focuses on areas where we're in agreement, particularly areas where Europe has aligned much more closely with the US perspective on the, the China issue, for example, um, we, can, we can achieve a lot in, uh, in relatively little time. So kind of to take everyone back into a pessimistic mindset for a second after we've had this very hopeful and optimistic you know, layout um, by both Lindsay and Martin. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the 5G issue, which I think is a mixed bag of optimism and pessimism. So, you know, there is a lot of evidence that a lot of European countries are starting to come around to the U.S.'s threat perception here. Many have opted to, you know, if not outright ban Huawei, at least to exclude it from their networks. Um, what do you think is next in the battle for Huawei? I mean, this has been dominating the headlines for so long, still kind of an open question in Germany. And, um, you know, do we think that the United States's recent revision of the foreign direct product rule that cut off um, a lot of chip exports to Huawei was that the game changer? Kind of where are we on this challenge and where do you see this headed, you know, across Europe, but especially as Germany continues to wrestle with this question? Sure, happy to jump in here quickly. I mean, I think if you look at where we were a year and a half ago at, and compare it with where we are now, there's a remarkable amount of progress that has been made. As you mentioned, more and more nations uh, in Europe are choosing to exclude Huawei from their networks. You know, Sweden just had an auction, um, a spectrum auction that Huawei was not a part of, and, and more countries are, are making that decision. And I think it's interesting to think about, you know, why, what sort of turned the tides? I think the sort of Trump administration approach to diplomacy on this issue did not start out strong out of the gate but actually sort of came around to understand some of the European concerns um, coupled with, I think, actions that the United States itself took. Remember, two years ago, the United States had not signed an executive order against Huawei itself. And there was, there was this big concern in Europe that this was, this was something where the U.S. wouldn't put its money where its mouth was. And in fact, that Trump, with his interest in, in trade deals with China and negotiating with Xi, would simply trade away issues about Huawei, you know, much in the way he tried to do with ZTE, uh, in favor of a, a favorable trade deal to the United States and sort of these protectionist impulses. I think we've seen that that actually has not been the case. And so some of these more stringent measures against Huawei have actually bolstered the United States case in Europe that this is a serious, serious national security issue. We do take this seriously. Um, so the question of Germany, I think it's it's uh, a true head scratcher that this has dragged on in Germany for as long as it has. And I think it's a testament to the strength of, frankly, the German auto industry um, and, and to a lesser extent, also the telecom industry that 
these forces are are so at work um, in in that country. So I I don't know what I think about Germany specifically where they will go. I've had at varying moments of optimism and pessimism vis-a-vis uh, -vis Germany specifically, but I do think that the tide is sort of turning against Huawei and. In terms of where we go from here, I think the the genocide declaration, if the Biden administration chooses to lean into that, will provide some kind of common ground and values based language to really raise some of the issues. Because remember, you know, Huawei um, does have this factory and, and this 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 site um, operating in Xinjiang and has uh, has has some concerning ties there. So to the extent that the genocide declaration makes these issues more public, I think we'll see see an increasing backlash um, against Huawei. But in terms of where we go from here, there's also you know, R&D when it comes to development of 6G systems and sort of getting to a place where the Western world and the democratic world is actually not reliant on Chinese infrastructural technology in the first place. So I think there's a there's a there's a bit of a lesson learned aspect of this this whole 5G mess that if we take ourselves down a path where we are reliant on untrustworthy equipment, then we're going to have to go through these costly expenditures to to rest ourselves from that dependence. Um, so I think you know I, I hope that what we'll see now is kind of a more strategic planning on the front end to avoid these dependencies and build trusted supplier bases. Yeah, two additional factors I'd like to point out is you know whether you agree with them or not, the uh, Trump administration's actions specifically targeting Huawei. You know, just from a pure technology standpoint, made the company a a less uh, desirable supplier, right? Because there's uh, no guarantee that they would be able to provide the uh, quality levels that you would want because they just don't have access to the the right chipsets anymore. And that then also raises big questions for future upgrades. Will the company be able to to access uh, future technologies that you would want to have on on your networks? The other thing is that now there's more focus too on actual technological alternatives to that that hardware vendor based model. Um, most interestingly, uh, just uh, last week, the the four big telecoms in Europe uh, issued a memorandum of understanding that they would actually start actively promoting. Uh, open interfaces for 5G networks. And so this is a way of using software-based um, techniques to uh, essentially replace the proprietary hardware provided by uh, the just a handful of vendors, uh, Huawei, Samsung, Nokia, and Ericsson. Um, and this is a way where you can have whole new companies enter the, the marketplace, so you have vendor diversity. There's also benefits in security, uh, lower costs. Um, so this, I think, makes it very interesting, particularly for the European tech ecosystem, because there's a lot of talk about technological sovereignty and so forth. So now if you have more European country, uh, companies being able to enter the market, I think that makes the whole prospect of uh, excluding one particular vendor much more palatable because it opens up these these new opportunities. And yeah, to Lindsay's point, um, you know, just the tremendous work that's already underway in Europe, Finland in particular, on what comes after 5G, so beyond 5G, 6G technologies, um, tremendous opportunity for 
technological leadership in Europe, but also for multilateral cooperation, right? If uh, there's a comm center in California that's doing very interesting research, uh, the Japanese, of course, uh, the South Koreans are pushing hard on that next generation of technologies already. And I agree with Lindsay, if we take the lessons learned from the 5G experience and really start applying those in how we plan out this next generation of technologies, um, you know, the United States and its allies will be in a much better place eight, 10 years down the road than, than we are now. So a lot of those problems were avoidable, I think, with more strategic thinking and planning. Um, and it's, it's really heartening to see that progress along those lines is being made now. So again, that makes me more bullish about the future um, than I was even uh, a year ago. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with what Martin just said about open networks and, and the strategic setting. And I think, you know, to, to Carissa, your original question about sort of avenues for cooperation, this is one where in 5G, we were sort of hamstrung by these questions about protectionism. Is it advancing US companies? Is it, is it advancing European companies? What's really the subtext of this diplomacy? And so one area we could proceed going forward in terms of multilateral tech cooperation is actually trying to fuse these ties a little deeper. So, you know, investments, joint investments in companies where their success is good for the United States and for several other nations um, would perhaps uh, add to that kind of multilateral spirit and, and sense of, of a shared values and, and shared goal and reduce some of the, the frictions that we've seen around, is this just trying to promote a particular nation's companies? On that same note of um, addressing these multilateral issues that should be brought to a multilateral forum like joint innovation, um, open radio access networks, 6G, pooling R&D, where is the ideal multilateral forum to address these types of issues? Is it something that's already existing? Is it in the UN bodies? You know, there's been talk of a T10, of a US-EU-Japan Technology Council. You know, where should we be having these conversations to advance these goals? I'm a big proponent of creating a new multilateral forum to address these issues. That's not to say that existing organizations don't have a role to play, but we have to remember that a lot of them were created in the pre-digital age. Um, and in most cases, their memberships don't really align with all the countries that you would want to be a part of this, right? I think the G7 from a size standpoint is probably closest, but then you're still missing some important countries like uh, South Korea and the Netherlands and Australia, for example. So if you start thinking about the, the whole landscape of what's out there, um, semiconductors is a great example. You end up zeroing in on a group of about 10 to 12 countries that would make sense as being a core group for a kind of tech alliance. And what's interesting is there's been a lot of uh, different proposals uh, coming out of, uh, of think tanks, but also foreign governments. So you mentioned the D10, that was a British government proposal, um, which I think is a, you know, a very interesting concept, right? And that one was primarily focused on the 5G question, but then uh, several think tanks, uh, CNAS included, have put forward proposals for um, you know, a technology alliance somewhere in the range of 10 to 12 countries 
working together on a whole range of technology issues. It could be supply chains, uh, could be 5G uh, semiconductors, but also some of the normative aspects of technology use. So if we start thinking about uh, the proper use of facial recognition technology, for, for example, having a group of like-minded democracies come to agreement on how to use these technologies, and then also, um, you know, showing the rest of the world uh, this is what we consider to be a proper use of this technology, and this is uh, an illiberal use that that should be uh, prevented and discouraged at all costs. Yeah, I think there have been certainly a number of interesting proposals for for tech alliances, multilateral tech cooperation that have been floated, and I, I think a lot of them are are very strong. Um, I think, you know, perhaps a an all of the above approach would not be totally out of uh, out of order, which is not to say that we need a D10 and a T12 and a G7 tech group plus three um, all at the same time, but rather that there may be areas where looser alliances may be effective on particular technology topics. Um, we may find more buy-in on export controls from a, a, a certain group of countries, more buy-in from on um, resisting China's techno-economic coercion uh, from a, a separate group of countries, and more easier intelligence sharing uh, from a, a, you know a third group of countries. Uh, so I think that as we as we look to adopt some of these useful frameworks that have been put forward, I don't think that's to the exclusion of bi bilateral relationships or trilateral relationships um, among both both the United States and European powers and middle powers uh, in the Indo-Pacific as well. So I, I yeah, I do think that there are going to be areas that are are more conducive to collaboration among particular countries and less less conducive to others. But I, I don't know that we need to necessarily limit the multilateral cooperation just because not an entire uh, group of countries is on board. So I think, you know, all of the above is great. And, you know, particularly on the standards question, that's one where this is actually taking place at, at, at many different fora, um, you know, particularly in the international technical standards landscape. There are hundreds of standards bodies that traditionally the United States has taken a, a very bottom up approach towards letting the private sector lead on, on developing technological standards that get then get used in technologies, you know, like 5G, like facial recognition, um, like these surveillance technologies that are increasingly problematic. And I think the reality is that we need to have just a little bit more coordination uh, on a national and, and multinational level uh, in understanding, as Martin said, what, what a good use of these technologies really looks like and what standards we should be promoting at bodies like the International Telecommunications Union, which is the world's oldest United Nations agency and, and which China has really, really made a very solid push to promote its own standards at um, and including around the developing world. I think in the in the transatlantic context, we have so much to deal with sort of uh, amongst ourselves that sometimes we don't think about how, how China's technological dominance is actually affecting democracy and human rights uh, and its own economic presence uh, around the developing world. But in fact, many of these surveillance technologies that we're so concerned about are finding very natural homes uh, in governments 
when and police uh, police forces uh, local and and larger where there is a huge problem uh, with with stopping particular crime um, and where protections for civil liberties may not be as entrenched as they are uh, in some of the nations that form sort of the traditional transatlantic core. So I think we we need to pay much more attention to those countries because uh, certainly China is. And they may, these sort of digital decider swing state countries may in fact be where much of the emerging technology agenda ends up getting set. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of opportunities for some really uh, interesting proactive measures that uh, that the United States and Europe can undertake. So, you know, imagine, um, you know, new investment mechanisms in emerging countries to help them build digital infrastructure in a sustainable way. And that that isn't subject to debt trap diplomacy, for example. Um, there's just a, a great foundation, I think, to build from, um, because I think one, um, one area that gives some countries pause is that they don't want to be seen as joining uh, an anti-China alliance of some sort. Um, so I think in order for a new groupings like this to be effective, uh, there has to, the predominance of the focus has to be on the affirmative agenda, right? So what can we do to um, boost our economic capacity? How do we more effectively compete against Chinese industrial policy? And how can we help other countries um, with less developed economies build up their infrastructure in a way that, uh, you know, they're not susceptible to Chinese exports of uh, questionable uses of technology and uh, the legal frameworks where illiberal uses of technology become um, entrenched. So there's a lot just on that very positive aspect that, uh, you know, pushing back against authoritarianism that uh, the United States and Europe can do together, which I think holds great promise. I'm going to switch gears just a tiny bit because would this be an episode about transatlantic technology policy if we didn't even just briefly touch on data privacy? So um, this probably falls in the category of those issues that Lindsay mentioned that animate the transatlantic relationship that really cause a lot of tension that are really their laser focus in you know those tensions that they have. So one question I have here is, I mean, data is going to underpin all of these systems. It will underpin artificial intelligence as that is developed. And right now there really are two very different approaches on each side of the Atlantic to data privacy. So my question is what can the US and Europe do to move closer together on this issue? I mean, does that require the US passing federal data privacy legislation? You know, if that is the case, what's your over under on if that will happen in the next four years? Um, kind of where do the US and Europe, where do they go from here on data privacy? It's, it's a great question. And I think as you, as you point out, it really does underpin all of these conversations about emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, driven industries, and the, the data analytics industry uh, of the present and future really come back to data. And particularly in the China context, we've seen that China is aggressively vacuuming up the world's data as sort of an economic and potentially national security imperative. And 
it's causing some, some serious questions about what models of, of open data versus closed data democracy should really be thinking about and promoting. And I think you're right that data privacy is central to the transatlantic relationship. I would say that it's perhaps not even the thorniest issue because um, I, I would probably put sort of digital taxation up there with some of the more sticky elements of the transatlantic relationship and, and even regulating online content uh, and, and the US big, big tech platforms, not just around data, but um, around auditability and risk that seem to be causing some of these, these frictions. But I, I, I'm slightly optimistic on the data privacy front. I do think there is, there is interest, um, including from the private sector, on crafting some sort of federal data privacy legislation. I'm not sure it will look exactly like Europe's general data protection regulation, but I do think that we, from a national security standpoint, we absolutely need to have some basic provisions uh, in there. Chief among them is a data breach notification requirement. Uh, this is sort of one of the best defenses against the continuing economic espionage that we've seen um, from China, from others. And I do think that there is an opportunity for the United States to sort of get a little bit closer to Europe on, on these questions of who owns data, how we store data and who can access it. Um, I don't know that that will be the be all and end all because there, there's, a, there's a tension between can you have these sort of risk vendor neutral frameworks that don't think about country of origin and, and GDPR would be sort of in that category of here are the standards that any company operating in the European Union has to adhere to when it comes to data. And part of the part part of the, the benefit to that, you know, particularly in cases like I think Martin mentioned earlier about around TikTok, is that a number of EU nations are actually using that law to investigate TikTok for its own data security practices. Uh, the United States doesn't have that option. To, to do those sorts of investigations based on a federal data protection law because we don't have one. So I think coming a little bit closer together on that will be helpful. On the flip side though, there is this question of whether you can really exclude country of origin from consideration of, of digital risk. And I, I think I come down on, on the side where that says you probably cannot. Um, and I think that could potentially be a source of friction in the transatlantic relationship. But I do think there's appetite to move a little bit closer to Europe on data privacy. Um, there are, of course, still concerns about, you know, what that means for innovation and, you know, particularly some of the, the regulation coming out of the EU for, you know, in regards to the Digital Services Act and potential criticisms of GDPR that they can actually hamstring innovation and make it more difficult for smaller companies to sort of build up their compliance regimes while also innovating at the same time. So I think maybe that's where Europe needs to potentially come a little bit closer to the US, um, but I don't think it's, in, at least in, on, on data privacy, I think it's a less, insurmountable, less insurmountable hurdle than for example, on you know, how, how France or how the OECD might tax Facebook and Google. So as a final question to both of you, um, if you were sitting in the Biden White House, what two policies would you recommend that the United States and Europe can do together 
on technology policy, ideally in the first 100 days, you know, really what is that low hanging fruit in the relationship that the US and Europe should be doing together? I think the uh, the low hanging fruit, particularly something that you could start initiating very quickly um, in an administration, is really focusing on uh, the normative aspect of technology. Um, so that the United States and the EU, the United Kingdom, and other like minded countries really sit down and talk through what the uh, how technology should and should not be used coming to common agreement as best as we can. I mean, there's always gonna be some differences when you talk about things like facial recognition, for example, or using AIs to screen for job applications or mortgages, but come to a, a, a baseline of understanding of, of what we agree can work and then try and export that model to other countries. And then at the same time, also push back very hard against illiberal uses of technology by China, particularly in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, for example. And that should include export controls um, and, and other measures to prevent Western technology being used in illiberal ways and also figure out ways to prevent uh, Chinese indigenous technologies to be used in that way as well. I think that's, that's an ideal area for close cooperation from the very early days of the administration. And then as a longer term effort, but something that should start right away is moving to more effective multilateral collaboration on the whole range of tech policy issues and really figuring out what that uh, organizational framework should be for how to engage, not just with the EU, but with Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, India, Canada, how we can move forward to deal with some really complex and difficult issues, right? When we start talking about supply chain diversification, um, when we start talking about plurilateral export controls, this is gonna take a lot of uh, strategic thinking, planning. It's gonna require engagement with stakeholders in industry and civil society. So in order to do these things properly, in order to set yourself up for success in what looks to be a multi-decade strategic competition with a rising China, that's gonna take a lot of effort. And I, I think the, the groundwork should be figuring out what that blueprint for broader co collaboration should look like. Yeah, yeah those are fantastic goals and uh, particularly on the, the point about the export controls and surveillance, uh, surveillance exports, technology exports to uh, enabling human rights abuses. I think that's one of the most important issues and I, I really hope that the, the genocide declaration can help us build off that. I might disagree slightly that that's in the low hanging fruit category uh, as much as I would love it to be. Uh, you know, the EU has, has, has worked for years now, almost a decade to sort of modify its export control regime around surveillance technologies and came up with a proposal recently that uh, was adopted and, and sort of added some teeth, but I think there is still, still a ways to go. And I would definitely put that, you know, top of the agenda, um, if if I'm surprised and it gets gets completed in the first 100 days, I would be absolutely delighted. Um, I think in the 
sort of in the low hanging fruit category, you know, one area that we've kind of touched on a little bit is setting up uh, joint R&D collaborations and particular pilot projects on artificial intelligence to create sandboxes for really making concrete what this democratic usage of AI could look like and how we could do it um, in a in a transatlantic way, whether that is invest joint investments in particular challenges, transatlantic challenges or contests um, or projects, you know, using data as simple as as weather data, something, you know, very non-sensitive that could could quickly sort of score a win uh, on the scoreboard there, I think would be in the low-hanging fruit category. And then something that we we haven't really talked about too much, but I, I do think there's significant momentum on is for, for emerging technologies within the NATO framework. Um, NATO is already planning hackathons and sort of 2030 emerging technology initiatives that are seeking to leverage technological cooperation uh, in, in the transatlantic alliance. NATO is reviewing its, its 5G telecommunications requirements for member states. There is such momentum uh, as part of that alliance coming out that I think that could be a place for some of these initiatives, perhaps not all of them, um, but some of these, these military cooperation initiatives, uh, cooperation on hybrid threats and understanding the sort of influence aspects uh, of authoritarian regimes on democracies in that sort of hard power versus soft power contest and, and context. Well, thank you to you both for joining us today. I mean, this has really been a tour de force. We've touched a ton of ground um, on technology policy. So we are very grateful to both of you for joining us today. Um, and we hope that you'll be able to join us again on Brussels Sprout soon. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, this was really great. Thank you.